It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Imagine you're a construction worker on the job in New York City, breaking ground for a new building. It's just another day at work as the backhoe digs scoop after scoop of dirt. At least until the backhoe scrapes against something that sounds like metal. No big deal. Probably just an old pipe, right? But when you get closer, you realize it's not a pipe. No, actually, it's an iron coffin. And so deteriorated that you can see that there's a body in there. Yikes. <laughs> so we know this sounds exactly like the cold open of an episode of Bones, but it's not. It's real life. In 2011, a construction crew working in Queens, New York, accidentally unearthed the coffin, which contained a body. They called the police, thinking they may have discovered a crime scene. But after some preliminary tests, medical examiners determined that the body wasn't from a crime. Instead, it was the body of a black woman who had been dead and buried for some 150 years. The woman became known to investigators as the woman in the iron coffin, and a team of forensic archaeologists, historians, and scientists spent the next several years trying to solve her mystery. Who was she? How did she die? Why was she buried in such a strange iron coffin? Today, we're really excited to have an extra special episode for you. We're honored to present this episode in conjunction with the PBS series Secrets of the Dead. Coming up this October, Secrets of the Dead will be airing the story of the woman in the iron coffin, in which a team of death detectives, which I sort of want that job, right? Death detective, (laughs) will reconstruct this woman's life. We've been lucky enough to see a preview and let us assure you, you need to see this. But in the meantime, we're here to offer a little extra context to everything that you'll learn from the experts on the show. The Woman in the Iron Coffin is a great opportunity to talk about so many different topics. But because the woman was a free black woman living in New York City in the 1850s, we're going to spend this installment of our slavery series talking about slavery in New York State, how it came to an end, and the lives of free black folks in the North. I'm Sarah. And I'm Elizabeth. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. The Lady in the Iron Coffin airs on PBS on October 3rd. You can catch it then or wherever you stream your PBS content. Queens, New York. Construction workers discover the body of a young woman. At first, it appears to be a homicide. But something about the scene doesn't quite add up. My colleague was finishing off sweeping away the last residue of the soil. That's when he discovered something kind of shocking. 
Now, forensic archaeologist Scott Warnash wants to piece together this historical puzzle. With the help of a close-knit New York community, we can identify with her because she does look like us. And so it does make it personal. We open the door to a neglected history. It's like a digital you know, puzzle that we're piecing together. It's really important that we create this rich and diverse tapestry of African-American life in the 19th century. To reveal the mystery behind the woman in the iron coffin. When we think of America's peculiar institution, we automatically think South, and with good reason. But when this country was founded, slavery existed all around the 13 colonies, North, South, East, and West. New York was no exception. When the Dutch decided to change their approach in their new Amsterdam colony in the 1610s and 20s, they began to bring enslaved Africans with them to use as manual labor to clear the land and build a settlement. By 1625, black men were already being used to clear forests, break ground for agriculture, build barns and houses, and load and unload ships. Without this work, the small Dutch population would not have been able to establish a permanent presence in the little harbor that would later become New York City. The slaves that the Dutch brought were referred to as Atlantic Creoles because they were likely from all corners of the slaveholding Atlantic world. For instance, the first small group of enslaved men had names like Simon Congo, Anthony Portuguese, Jan Francisco, and Jan Fort Orange, revealing the diversity of backgrounds that they likely had, ranging from the Portuguese and Brazilian to African influences. Wherever they were from, these enslaved men and many others were used to do the grunt work for establishing a greater Dutch presence in the so-called New World, specifically the tip of Manhattan, where the Dutch West India Company had decided to establish its American headquarters. One of their tasks was clearing land and constructing new roads, including one you may have heard of, Broadway. Now, there were Dutch settlers living in Manhattan. Not a huge population, especially at first, because the Dutch were initially more interested in making New Amsterdam a base for fur trading rather than an actual settlement. But either way, white people lived there. But those white Dutch folks were much more interested in business than the grunt work that would make the business possible. Now, to me, this is one place where we see similarities between the use of unfree labor in the South and in the North. This was the same problem that folks in the Chesapeake had at first, when English men emigrated, thinking that they would rake in the big bucks just without doing any manual labor. The difference, though, is that the Dutch had slaves at this point. In the Chesapeake, it took them a few decades to build up a population of servants and slaves to do that work for them. But the Dutch actually made sure that when they made their settlement in Manhattan, kind of switched from fur trading to actually making a, a, a settlement, that they had that labor ready from the get-go. In fact, when they decided to switch gears away from using the settlement as a trading hub and toward creating a settled colony, this became part of the Dutch West India Company's selling point for luring white settlers to New York. 
they promised well-to-do settlers large tracts of land to establish manors if these settlers promised to raise groups of at least 50 additional people to bring with them. In addition, the company assured these wealthy settlers that, quote, the company will use their endeavors to supply the colonists with as many blacks as they conveniently can to do all of the hardest work. By 1650, roughly one quarter of the New Amsterdam population was enslaved. These slaves worked in the city, such as it was, of New Amsterdam, doing what one historian called municipal work, essentially doing the infrastructure necessary to build and keep the city running. In addition, as the city went on, more and more... Oops. In addition, as the century went on, more and more enslaved people were being sent up the Hudson to work as agricultural labor at all those manors established by wealthy Dutch settlers. But as the population of enslaved people grew, their status as property became more unclear. While black men and women were considered enslaved, there was really no legal declaration of what exactly that meant. Remember, this is in the mid-1600s. Even in the Chesapeake, which we will associate much more strongly with its use of slaves, the legal status of black people was not totally fleshed out. And we actually talk about that a lot in my episode. Oh, perfect. So this is kind of a a cross-pollination here. So this is something I always try to emphasize to my students. Slavery didn't just happen. It wasn't innate or something. It was created through decisions made by white folks. Just because a black person was brought to New York in the early 1600s to be used as unfree labor, that didn't mean that that meant the same thing to everyone. New Yorkers, just like Virginians and Marylanders and South Carolinians, had to make a series of decisions about what slavery meant. Was it for life? Could you pay slaves? What happened to enslaved people's children? Did they also become slaves? These things didn't just happen naturally. They were the result of decisions made by people in power. Yes. And in the early to mid 1600s, all these questions were still up in the air. And in some cases, black residents of New Amsterdam used this to their advantage. In 1635, a small group of black laborers petitioned the Dutch West India Company for a raise in wages, saying that they deserved to be paid the same as white workers. Yes, they were being paid for their work. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Even though they were slaves? Yeah. Not only did the company agree that they had the right to make such a request, they agreed and the men received a raise. Black residents also had access to the court system and were able to make claims and testify. They were also treated relatively fairly by the court system and allowed to carry arms and serve in the militia. Enslaved Dutch people were allowed to legally marry, attend church, and their children could go to school. And men who served in the military were sometimes given their freedom and tracts of land of which to start a farm. Black residents of New Netherland adopted Dutch culture and had a real presence in the colony, developing their own places and spaces. One such place was the African Burying Ground, a cemetery established by black Dutch people. This is all very, very different from what we know about Southern slavery, particularly later in the 18th and 19th century. But let's also not be too positive. Dutch people equated black skin with slavery. And even if they didn't have a law giving them a legal basis, white Dutch people believed that was the proper way of things. It wasn't uncommon for free blacks to be re-enslaved because Dutch people simply assumed that they must have run away or were lying about their status. Right. We don't want to paint too rosy a picture. 
In the mid-17th century, the governing body of New Amsterdam, called the Council of New Amsterdam, granted freedom to a small group of black men. These men had all worked for the company for years, and we can guess had probably proven themselves as trustworthy and capable of supporting themselves. The council granted freedom to 11 men and their wives and gave them each grants of land in what is now Washington Square Park in Greenwich Village, where they would be set apart from the rest of the settlers. In their Declaration of Freedom, the council stated that they, quote, released the aforesaid Negroes and their wives from their bondage for the term of their natural lives, hereby setting them free and at liberty on the same footing as other freed people here in New Netherland, where they shall be permitted to earn their livelihood on the land shown and granted to them. This sounds really great, right? Especially so early on, so long before we know, you know, slavery is eventually abolished. But there was a catch. The council did not free their children. Instead, These children had an awkward status that some historians have called half-free. They were still considered slaves, and they were the property of the Dutch West India Company, but they resided on these separate farms living with their free parents. Obviously, this was pretty upsetting for their parents, who often tried to find workarounds. Some uh, of these freed people had their children baptized as Christians, putting faith in the very old tradition that one could not hold a fellow Christian in bondage. That did not work. Others tried to sue the government, using the argument that no other slaveholding society enslaved the children of free people, uh, sort of the inverse of the principle that the child follows the status of the mother, right? If the mother is free, then you can't have the child be enslaved. In the end, most parents were forced to accept their children's status or buy their freedom, which was pretty darn expensive. Things began to change in 1647 when Peter Stuyvesant became the director of the Dutch West India Company and therefore the head of the New Amsterdam Settlement. Stuyvesant was less friendly to the black Dutch population. He also was under pressure from the Netherlands states general, so sort of their Congress, which was frustrated that the company had not been more active in the slave trade, which they rightly believed was quite profitable. Stuyvesant ramped up the slave trade within the company. The company had for decades kept a tight grip on the slave trade, not wanting independent traders getting in on the cash for fear of driving down prices or overdrawing on the stock. In other words, depleting the population of West Africa. Right. But in 1652, the company decided that the market was robust enough to support more traders, and Dutch businessmen rushed to get in on the business. This included residents of New Netherland, including the Schuylers and the Van Cortlands. So um, if you're from New York State, you should recognize those names, right? We have a Schuyler County. We have a Cortland County, uh, as well as towns named Schuyler, Cortland, and Cortland Manor. Um, And for my Hamilton fans, you know the Schuylers, right? They become Alexander Hamilton's in-laws. So yeah, all that money that Angelica and Eliza's daddy had, that was slaver money. I mentioned that these things started to change with when Peter Stuyvesant took control of the company in 1647. Well, they changed even more in 1664, when the English Navy sailed a fleet to the mouth of New York Harbor. Peter Stuyvesant wanted to resist the English, even though they obviously had the military might just to roll them over. Mm -hmm. But he couldn't convince literally anyone else to back him up. So on September 8, 1664... The Dutch surrendered New Amsterdam to the English. 
This is, of course, when the colony of New Netherland and the city of New Amsterdam became known as New York. Now, I'm not going to lie. I don't know a whole heck of a lot about this period of time, but I just thought it was really funny that Peter Stuyvesant was like, we should fight back against these guys. They're trying to take our colony. And everybody was like, nope. Nope. (laughs) I got the big gun. Yeah, just give it all to them. (laughs) And I don't really know much about that. I just thought it was kind of funny. Anyway, so just months after taking over the colony and uh, taking over the city, the English codified slavery legally. At the same time, the English began to reduce their use of white indentured servants and enslaved Native Americans, which were being used um, to a much smaller extent, but they there were some enslaved um, Native Americans in the colony. We keep comparing this situation um, to the experience in the South, but I think that this is really telling. In the Southern colonies, obviously also held by the English, there were also a series of laws passed in the late 17th century that began to codify slavery into the legal system. Um, And I'll just point out that um, in Elizabeth's episode on the Black Codes, she goes over this in much greater detail. um, But I just want to mention it again because I, I do want to kind of highlight the similarities here. But even before those laws were being passed in the late 17th century, there were a series of laws that were designed to widen the gulf between different forms of unfree labor. For instance, between the 1660s and the 1680s, Virginia passed a number of laws that restricted black mobility and freedom and made white indentured servants more distinct from enslaved blacks. So, for example, um, in these laws, blacks couldn't own weapons. They couldn't own livestock. They couldn't own their own slaves. Blacks were to be treated separately by the court system. They couldn't intermarry with whites. And of course, that the, the, the key part of them, part of these laws being that the children of enslaved women were themselves slaves. This, of course, served to restrict what black people could and could not do. But it also had sort of a larger cultural purpose. It began to shift the colonies away from being a place where lots of different kinds of unfree labor existed and where lots of different kinds of people could perform varying degrees of unfree labor and towards one where black people were inherently slaves. Mm -hmm. So in other words, while the Dutch were content to enslave black people and were often pretty dang racist, they also considered them just another part of their society. The English were beginning to create a different system where black people were no longer just another form of labor, but instead transformed into chattel. The English also doubled down on slavery. Between 1698 and 1756, the population of New York City grew significantly as did the percentage of that population that was enslaved. Most of these enslaved people were transported directly from Africa, though some did stop briefly in the British Caribbean. The auction market where enslaved people were bought and sold was known as the meal market, which was at the water's edge at the end of Wall Street. I I just want to interject there for a couple of reasons. First, it was called the meal market because that's where they um, also traded grains. Mm, mm -hmm. And so that's where the the term meal comes from. But while I was researching this, I was looking at all these maps, you know, of the city in the the 18th century and 17th and 18th century. And I all of a sudden realized I've been right there. Like I, I was 
going um, for a fellowship. They took us out um, for like drinks at a bar down at the near the the tip of Manhattan. And I was I must have been standing maybe a block away from where the meal market was. I had absolutely no idea. Yeah. Um, and there's a couple of other places that we'll mention through here um, through the rest of the the episode where that one of the one of the streets that becomes important later on was had the it's this tiny little side street my hotel was on that street mm-hmm. it's just so it's so odd anyway yeah. no i mean i was thinking when you were mentioning washington square i've i've spent a ton of time around washington yeah. square like my husband used to live in greenwich village and yeah like i guess there's maybe some plaques somewhere there must along the be ways. Yeah. but having been around in that area a lot i didn't know that that right. was originally a settlement for, you know, freed people kind of thing. Right. So, yeah, I mean, New York, as with any city, is, is riddled right. with these kind of things. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, it's so interesting that you can just be, be just there. totally unaware. I mean, it's the same thing with Schuyler County and Cortland County. And, like, you know that those names came from something, but um, you don't know all of the sort of background about, you know, for me, I didn't know how invested the Schuylers and the Cortlands were in slavery. Right. And the fact that tons of things across our state are named after them, you know. Yeah. That's a little troubling. And it also, I was saying to my husband the other day that a lot of this history kind of takes away, like, the northern self-satisfaction that we have with ourselves. Mm -hmm. That, like, we don't have to worry about having schools named, like, you know. Robert E. Lee. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, well, we have a ton of things named after the Schuylers or Peter Stuyvesant, right? absolutely. Yeah. The most demanding market for slaves was for young girls and women to be domestic servants, especially nurses for young white children. To be clear, we don't mean wet nurses, but um, more like a nanny. And I emphasize that they weren't wet nurses because New York specifically sought out black women who did not have children to be domestics. Pregnancy and motherhood made enslaved women less useful, quote unquote, and added the financial burden of more mouths to feed. Barrenness became a selling point. Isn't that weird? Yeah, yeah. It also made infanticide more likely as enslaved women, afraid of being sold away or punished, gave birth to babies in secret and killed them. As this note in a 1736 issue of New York Weekly illustrates, quote, Yesterday morning was found in the Negro's burial place a small infant in a wig box and partially buried underground. Aww. In New York, regardless of what kind of work enslaved people performed, they lived cheek and jowl with their white masters. Slaves slept in attics, spare rooms, and the kitchens of their masters' houses, and they performed work alongside white laborers. Is, is, I'm sorry, cheek and jowl? Yeah. Is that a common colloquialism? It is. I've never heard that. Have you heard that? You mean tongue and cheek? No, cheek and jowl. It means like living very, like being very close next to each other. No, that's not a thing. Yes, it is. <laughs> no. I promise you it is a real thing. <laughs> All right. Sure I is. promise. If it's not a thing, then then I just invented it. Okay. Probably. <laughs> uh, anyway, but um, slaves also established their own networks. One of the last chores for enslaved people to perform during the day was to fetch water for the next morning, which turned water pumps into sites of gossip and camaraderie. Slaves were also used to run errands, which meant that they were able to establish relationships with slaves all around the city. 
In Jill Lepore's book, New York Burning, she describes the rounds of an enslaved man named Pedro, made in 1741. Quote, Last fall, he, Pedro, went out one Sunday morning with Mrs. Carpenter's Negro, Albany. As they went along the Broadway, the street, they met with Mr. Slidell's Jack, who was going to Comfort's house for tea water. At the market near Mr. Delancey's house, they met two other Negroes, and Albany asked them all to go down to Hewson's and drink with them. This gives us a little glimpse into an hour in the life of one of these men and shows the social networks that enslaved people built. The problem with Pedro's jaunt around the town, as Lepore points out, is that it was illegal. The English were becoming increasingly paranoid about slave insurrection as they neared the middle of the 18th century. It was actually illegal for more than three slaves to gather together at once out of the fear that large groups of slaves were dangerous and that such gatherings offered the chance to plot. Right. Another similarity to the slaveholding South. Absolutely. Right. More than that, though, Pedro was also violating other laws, including being out after dark. Now, if the group got a little rowdy and started laughing uh, or making noise, that would also violate a law that made it illegal for, quote, Negro, mulatto or Indian slaves above the number of three to assemble or meet together on the Lord's Day called Sunday and sport, play or make any noise or disturbance. There were a whole bunch of similar, complicated and super specific laws like this. In 1730, New York Governor John Montgomery consolidated all of those laws into kind of one big law. This law upheld the strictures on mobility and gathering in large groups and added a provision that made it illegal to carry or own weapons. These laws weren't the result of pure paranoia, though. They had good reason to fear that the enslaved population of the city would rise up against them. In March 1712, a group of about 40 to 50 slaves made a plot to burn the city and kill every white person in it. They were armed with guns, knives, and axes and managed to kill nine white New Yorkers and wound six more. New York slaves were severely punished for the uprising, with more than 25 executed. Some hanged, but others burned at the stake and one tortured on the wheel. But what happened in 1741 was even more horrifying. In March of 1741, a fire broke out in the governor's mansion on the very tip of Manhattan. At a time when fires were the greatest possible threat to a city, and the only defense was a bucket brigade of tiny... and a <laughs> I'm sorry. You said that, and I imagine <laughs> tiny bucket, tiny bucket, a bucket brigade of tiny firemen, <laughs> little <laughs> leprechaun. Oh my god! It's like the Oompa Loompas come oh out to fight fires. And the only defense was a bucket brigade and a tiny group of firemen, essentially volunteers who passed buckets of water to one another to be tossed on the flames. So fire was a serious threat. Right. The fire spread from the mansion to Fort George, engulfing wooden homes in its path, including the secretary's office, which was inexplicably filled with hand grenades. <laughs> okay. That's one of my favorite parts of the that story. exploded. Because... <laughs> Everybody forgot that it was filled with hand grenades until the flames were like coming close, and then and they, they were like, like oh, "Oh crap!" Shit. <laughs> the hand grenades. Yeah. Oh my god. 
Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, a company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid high amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So, At four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable, it's third party tested for microbes and heavy metals, and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself. With 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. Even while the city burned, people began to speculate that the fire was intentionally set as part of a slave conspiracy to overthrow white power. A grand jury was convened to investigate the fires and determine the existence of a conspiracy. The result was something like the Salem Witch Trials. When people were accused of taking part in the plot, they attempted to save themselves and their loved ones by implicating others, setting off a domino effect of accusations, most of them likely untrue. The very first witness, a 16-year-old enslaved girl, named a handful of slaves who had committed a burglary, then testified that those same slaves plotted to set a fire and said that part of their plan was that when white people came to put out the fire, the slaves were going to murder them, overthrow the government, and declare one of them the governor. Several of those slaves implicated others before they were executed. One of them was hanged, and then his body hung in a cage, um, which is what we refer to as gibbeting, as an act of warning towards others. As more and more accusations were made, more and more trials took place. Soon, it ballooned to an almost absurd degree. The supposed plot was said to have taken place over a lavish feast shared by a promiscuous gathering of black men and their white lovers. The gathered conspirators were accused of plotting to murder whites, burn the city to the ground, overthrow the government, declare one of them king. But eventually, the conspiracy, the theories anyway, morphed into an international papist possibly Spanish conspiracy to overthrow Protestant English rule. In other words, it it ballooned to something that was just completely preposterous. Unable to believe that black people were sophisticated or intelligent enough to weave such a complex plot, a plot that was likely untrue, the judge overseeing the trials, whose name was Daniel Horsmanden, insisted that white people must have orchestrated the whole thing. In the end, 161 blacks and 20 whites were arrested, 17 black people were hanged, 13 were burned at the stake, and 70 were banished from the city. No one is entirely sure whether or not there actually was a plot, although Jill Lepore does lay out some evidence that the enslaved men themselves likely did at least discuss their desire for freedom and the possibility of setting fires. Um, I just this is another point where I just want to compare this to, you know, both to the Salem witch trials, but also to the American South. I mean, 13 black New Yorkers were burned at the stake in New York City. Um, 
again, like and the North late. was. What what's the year? This is 1741. That is late. This is only Salem thirty something years before the the revolution. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. That's like. And some... the Sal- you're right. The Salem witch trials are 1690s. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, Holy cow! If yeah. it's if like you... some medieval. Like... Yes. <laughs> yeah. Gibbeting. I mean, my yeah. God. Um, and that's the cages, right? That's yes. Like the, yeah. And yeah. The, okay. Um, and so you know. Obviously, we always share our sources, but if you haven't read Jill Lepore's book, New York Burning, you really need to get on that. Not only is she a fantastic writer, um, but it's such an important story. So the hysteria over a conspiracy did eventually die down, but it was only a few decades before another crisis threw slavery in New York into chaos again. This time, the crisis really was an international one. The Revolutionary War created a complicated situation for Black New Yorkers. Black New Yorkers, both slave and free, protested and rioted the crown together, including helping the Sons of Liberty to pull down the statue of King George. At the same time, the city government reenacted old laws mandating physical punishment for slaves out after dark because so many slaves were simply walking away from bondage, partly because there was ample opportunities for jobs in the bustling port city. When the war broke out, although some blacks had joined with patriots in the preceding years, slaves found that the Americans were not invested in ensuring freedom and liberty for everyone, just whites. When Lord Dunmore, the governor of Virginia, declared that the British would grant liberty to slaves who joined the British troops, slaves saw this as a sign that the English were the safer bet. When the military unit created by Dunmore's proclamation, called Dunmore's Ethiopian Regiment, came to New York City, Hundreds of fleeing New York slaves sought freedom by running to their ranks. As historians Graham Russell and Gow Hodges put it, New York under British rule became an emporium for black freedom. In 1777, British General Henry Clinton made the same promise that Dunmore had made, offering slaves freedom in exchange for their service for the crown. A year before, Clinton had created an all-black military unit, the Black Pioneers, and not only allowed black men positions as non-commissioned officers, he paid them equally with other British officers. Which is, again, wild. Uh, You know, as a Civil War historian, we know that almost 100 years later, the Union Army is still not paying black soldiers on par with white comrades. So um, this is this is pretty wild stuff. At the same time, though, the British, believing that they would win the war and retain the colonies, did not free the slaves of loyalists. Technically, Dunmore and Clinton's proposals to slaves to run to their ranks applied only to the slaves of patriots, but no doubt many slaves of loyalists also snuck in under the radar. So even while taking strides, like offering formerly enslaved soldiers equal pay, Um, Again, something even the Union Army struggled to do even 80-something years later, the British made no steps to stop the slave trade or to free slaves universally, even just across the New York colony. In fact, the price of slaves actually rose precipitously during the war as supply dwindled and the transatlantic slave trade was paused to prevent taking men and ships away from the Royal Navy. So internal slave trading made some loyalists a fortune during the war years. But even then... Because of the increased freedom the British allowed some black New Yorkers, racial lines became a little more flexible during the war. 
white and black soldiers enjoyed dances and pastimes like horse racing together, and the racial divide narrowed just a bit. When the Americans won the war, however, things became dicey for newly freed slaves. Their status was completely up in the air. Their freedom had been granted by the British, who were largely powerless to enforce it. Slaveholders considered even enslaved men who had served in the British ranks as stolen property, including George Washington. Still, General Guy Carleton, commander-in-chief of the British forces, committed to ensuring that all slaves who were promised freedom received it. In 1783, Carleton documented some 3,000 black New Yorkers, 1,336 men, 914 women, and 750 children, who had been promised their freedom in a volume that became known as the Book of Negroes. Each former slave was given a certificate that acted sort of like a passport, allowing them to leave New York City and go elsewhere in the British Empire. Almost all of those recorded in the Book of Negroes moved to Nova Scotia. Even though slavery did not die in New York State with the Revolution, it had fundamentally changed. Major players in state and city politics started to become abolitionists. It was lost on exactly no one that the United States had built a nation, quote-unquote, conceived in liberty, while denying liberty to an entire class of people held in bondage, a concept historians often call the American paradox. John Jay, a New York City attorney, later governor of New York, later Supreme Court justice, urged that New York's constitution end slavery in the state, writing, quote, Till America comes into this measure, her prayers to heaven for liberty will be impious. I just love that quote because it's just such powerful proof that people of this time period knew that this was a serious problem, right? Mm -hmm. We like to think that the founding fathers just didn't. No. Right. Like they they just, oper- operated on some like alternative universe where they yeah. didn't understand human rights. And, yeah. And just, you know. Or that they didn't see that this was a massive contradiction. Right. right? Like right. we have just suddenly like we pride ourselves on knowing now like, oh, this was a contradiction. They knew, they knew that, that as well. Right? And you, I mean, you can see that just in the discussions uh, over passing the Constitution. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they were very, very aware that this was that this was a paradox. Right. Yeah. And that this looked bad. Right. Either way, together with Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, John Jay went on to form the New York Manumission Society, which lobbied the state government to loosen the laws of slavery if they would not just abolish it outright. They led boycotts against the businesses of slaveholders and helped to change slave laws in New York State to restrict slavery in terms of you know restricting where it could exist and, and where people could take their slaves and things mm-hmm. like that, um, and to ensure slaves received fair trials. But even with this atmosphere for liberty and this commitment from several, quote unquote, founding fathers, ending slavery in New York State was not that easy. The founding generation was committed not just to liberty, but to natural rights, one of which was property. Even for those who believed that slavery was wrong, also felt uncomfortable with the idea of the government telling citizens that they no longer had the right to own their property. 
Of course, the paradox was that the natural rights argument also meant that if slaves were people, then they also deserved natural rights, specifically their freedom. Right. We got a problem here, right? right? (laughs) So to illustrate just how paradoxical this all was, one-fifth of the members of the Manumission Society actually owned slaves. Uh, They continued to acquire slaves into the 1790s. Isn't that bonkers? That is kind of wild, yeah. And I mean... Again, just to point out, Alexander Hamilton marries into the Schuyler family, which made their money off of the slave trade, right? Mm-hmm. So I've read a lot of really cogent criticisms of Hamilton, the musical, that says, you know, the, the musical points out several times how Alexander Hamilton was an abolitionist and his right. wife was an abolitionist. And it's sure that's true, but it's actually a lot more complicated right. than that. And and what supported that that lifestyle right. to be able to be to, to mm-hmm. do the things that they did right? and what did it mean to actually be an abolitionist in the 18th century right. wasn't necessarily freedom and equality right yeah yeah the solution to the paradox that the manumission society and eventually the New York State government found Mm -hmm. was in gradual emancipation, a slow, steady decrease in slavery until it died naturally. This wasn't completely out of left field. Lots of members of the founding generation believed that slavery was going to die out eventually, but New York State formalized this into law at the urging of the Manumission Society. The process of gradual emancipation was, well, gradual. (laughs) Oh, really? I crack myself up. Um, Even settling on how it would work was super complicated. The New York State Assembly settled on a manumission bill in 1785. In this measure, slaves would be freed slowly over the course of a number of years. Those born before 1785 would remain enslaved, and those born after would be freed, although they would be indentured as apprentices to their masters until their 25th birthday. The idea was that putting abolition off until in their 22nd for women or 25th birthday for for men meant that masters still recouped some of the lost investment, sweetening the deal for grumpy slaveholders. However, the New York State Senate and the Assembly were split over whether freed slaves would be considered full New York State citizens after their emancipation. The Assembly supported manumission, but not equal rights. The Senate thought that this was problematic and supported giving blacks more rights. Eventually, they compromised and passed a bill that freed slaves, allowed blacks to run for public office, but in a completely inexplicable compromise, denied them the right to vote. I mean, that makes no sense. You can run for public office, but (laughs) you can't vote. So, you know, this was absurd. However, um, during the first decades of New York State's history, any bill passed by the legislature had to go through a third process known as the Council of Revision, which was made up of the governor, the quote-unquote chancellor, who was the highest-ranking judge in New York State, and any two judges from the New York State Supreme Court system. This council would review all bills. The council rejected this manumission bill precisely because of its inability to live up to the standards of the revolution. They argued you couldn't free people, expect them to live among the population of a state, but then deny them the right to participate in their own government. So that bill died and slavery remained intact. The abolitionist members of the New York state government were not deterred. By 1792, John Jay became governor of New York and breathed new life into the movement to end slavery in the state. 
It was by no means an easy process. Many New Yorkers were quite dedicated to slavery and accused Jay of wanting to, quote, rob every Dutchman of the property he possessed most dear to his heart, his slaves. Many more thought that it was illegal to deny a citizen of their property without compensation and that abolition was a form of tyranny. Despite pro-slavery folks' complaints, in 1799, the New York legislature finally passed a bill that abolished slavery gradually. Like the 1785 measure, this bill stated that any slave born before July 4th of 1799 would remain enslaved, but any born after that date would be freed. Also, like the 1785 law, it dictated that those freed children would be indentured to their masters until their 21st birthday, ensuring that masters recouped at least some of their losses. The state also agreed to take on the expense of caring for children as well as disabled and elderly slaves, so masters had that quote-unquote burden lifted. Yeah, it was almost like a form of welfare. Right. So even when New York abolished slavery, the institution remained more or less as it had been. In fact, while New York City had been a beacon of freedom, however tenuous, during the Revolutionary War, when the war ended, the city's enslaved population was higher than any other city in the Northeast. Even as the rest of the state naturally began to rely less and less on slave labor, the city doubled down. As Patrick Rail states, in a time when slavery weakened throughout the region, it was remarkable that New York City's slave population increased by 20% in the last decade of the 18th century. Gradual abolition was both a positive and a negative for enslaved people themselves. Knowing that slavery was coming to an end, slaves and masters began to negotiate terms, effectively writing contracts. Take, for example, an enslaved man named Yacht, owned by John and Sarah Glenn. In 1805, the three agreed that Yacht would remain enslaved for six more years, then freed. But in the meantime, Yacht had to obey certain rules, observe a set schedule of work and rest days, and by 1805, Yacht had to pay his former masters $90. That's no small sum. This shows us that Yacht must have had some ability to negotiate with his masters and that they weren't unwilling to free him, but only if he held up his fairly difficult end of the bargain. The old debate over whether or not freed slaves would become full citizens was also not entirely settled. While the gradual emancipation law did not say that freed people could not be citizens, many New Yorkers were reluctant to actually honor the civil rights of black people. While abolitionist legislatures were able to get bills strengthening some rights, like the right to marry, opponents placed strictures on black suffrage. While black people could still vote, they needed to produce freedom papers to be allowed to the ballot. And later, all black men needed to register to quote-unquote prevent voter fraud, though whites weren't held to the same standards. Does that sound eerily familiar no, what are you talking about? I have no idea. I know, right? I, it, this is it's really, really uh, transparent, right? What they're what they're trying to do. They're trying to limit black suffrage, right. um, but extra judiciously, I guess, if that's a word, um, yeah. extra legally, sure. illegally. Sure. <laughs> um, Re- reaching back into that past, there, right? right. I also just want to point out really quickly that. Um, while black people could still vote, the, this process of like narrowing it and narrowing it and narrowing it continues through the 19th century. Um, later on, I think it's in the 1840s, they pass uh, property 
um, requirements. Yeah. yeah, so black men had to have like $1,500 in property in order to vote. Right. So in 1812, the abolitionists had another boost when Daniel D. Tompkins, longtime member of the Manumission Society and governor, asked the legislature to free the slaves that were left in bondage by the gradual emancipation law. In 1817, they finally passed a law that all those born before July 4th, 1799 would finally be freed. Great, right? Yes. Yay. <laughs> There's a hitch. Of course. It didn't go into effect until July 4th, 1827. Ten years later. Right. And actually, there was yet another hitch. Now, imagine you were a young enslaved woman, maybe in her 20s or 30s, during the decade between 1817 and 1827. There's a pretty high likelihood that you would have a child, right? And as we know, the condition of the child follows the condition of the mother, which means that, you know, your child would be born into slavery. So your child would be freed in 1827, right? No, not necessarily. Like the 1799 law, the 1817 law dictated that children born into slavery, even up to July 4th, 1827, would be indentured to their masters until their 21st birthday. This meant that effectively slavery, or at least slavery by another name, indenture, right, could extend until 1848. Now, the good news is that it didn't. We know that by 1830, the census revealed only 75 enslaved people still living in New York State, and by 1840, there were none. So after a long, protracted death, slavery in New York was finally gone. 1840 is still really late, It's really, really late, Yeah. yeah. So that didn't mean that everything was perfect for Black New Yorkers. Many free Blacks continued to work long, grueling hours and often menial jobs. Black men often worked as bucket men who emptied out the city's privies by night. Those are essentially toilets, if you don't know. Yes. <laughs> and uh, they hustled at a variety of small freelancing jobs. Um, what's the other word for it? Nightmen? Night soilmen? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. For instance, um, in regards to these freelance jobs, black men often waited by the docks offering to carry travelers' bags in return for a few coins. Both men and women peddled various wares on the street, most often as street food vendors. The big ones were oysters and corn, apparently. Mm. Let me some corn. <laughs> the majority of free black women continued to work in domestic service. But at the same time, in the first decades of the 19th century, a class of educated elite free blacks emerged. In 1785, several members of the New York Manumission Society, including John Jay and Alexander Hamilton, established the New York African Free School. In 1792, a sister school for girls was founded. In these schools, young black students learned the same things their white counterparts did. Literature, mathematics, science, geography. Almost as important, the school fostered leadership skills. This was more an accident than anything else. The school was so chronically understaffed that older advanced students were required to help to teach the little ones. And so they learned how to organize, how to plan, how to lead others. The school and others like it did help to create a class of black intellectuals, but it also had a dark side. 
First, the school was a product of the white savior syndrome because many whites, including those of the Manumission Society, <coughs> Alexander Hamilton, <laughs> believed that blacks were inherently less civilized and prone to criminality and sloth. The school was meant to be a kind of intervention, raising black children in the quote unquote right way. Lessons emphasized deference to authority and maintenance of order and discipline. Historian Carla Peterson tells the story of an essay that several of the students wrote in 1828. These essays were delivered to an abolitionist group and were purported to have just been spontaneously written without being without any prompting from their teachers. Like they all just sat down and wrote these essays. Mm -hmm. But all of the essays were more or less the same. Like they weren't exactly identical, but they all had the exact same pattern. And all of the essays included profuse thank yous to their, quote, benefactors, in other words, the white people that funded the school. And they also all included descriptions of themselves as, quote, poor little descendants of Africa. Mm. The the other second dark side. <laughs> the other second dark side. The other dark side of the school was that it may have produced well-educated and genteel young men and women, but all that education couldn't create a racially egalitarian society for them to walk into. Even with their excellent educations, graduates of the school struggled to establish careers, especially in fields that were considered elite or professional. When several young men from the African Free School tried to go to the Noyes Academy in Connecticut for more schooling, probably more or less akin to college, um, a mob of whites, livid that the school might be co-ed, destroyed the school and drove the men out. Later, they did find a school, actually the Oneida School, founded by the Oneida community, um, which was initially created to educate Native Americans. Um, they they found this school and they were able to attend it. But then later on, when one of them wanted to become an Episcopal priest, he was rejected from the Protestant Episcopal Theological Seminary in New York City because he was black. Now, I, I tried to find where he ended up going to get ordained, but I couldn't track that down. Either way, we do know that he he was eventually ordained. So this all sounds pretty bad, and it should, because it is. <laughs> but at the same time, we need to acknowledge that many graduates of the school did go on to great success, and as we mentioned before, helped to create the black New York City elite. Right. Graduates of the school had the major advantage of networking with both other black graduates, but also with the white men who helped to fund the school. These connections helped many graduates to find places in business, where they often worked their way to wealth and status. For example, Philip White used this connection to Peter Guignon, an older alumni, to secure an apprenticeship in the older man's drugstore, which made him eligible for the New York City College of Pharmacy. Now, he didn't get barred because of his race, most likely because the pharmacy profession was new and desperate to establish itself. So it was probably just happy to have people go, you know, be going to its school. Right. Now, later, he built his own drugstore, which later expanded to sell drugs wholesale, helping to make him wealthy and elite in his own right. While the black elite was growing, black culture in the city was also flourishing. For working class blacks, one of the preferred pastimes was the stroll, something that was free, sociable, and could be done in the evening after work or on Sunday afternoons. Strolling, which is 
exactly what it sounds like. It's just walking down the street um, was a pretty common activity for everyone, right, for whites and blacks alike. But black New Yorkers use it as a time to flaunt their freedom by asserting their right to dress up, be loud and take up space. We're going to see this theme over and over again, this this kind of insistence on their ability or their freedom to occupy space. White people in the early 19th century, especially travelers to the city, were constantly horrified at the clothing that black people wore. One Englishman was disgusted to see black women strolling, wearing, quote, white muslin dresses, artificial flowers and pink shoes. OMG. Am I right? It sounds really horrifying. Uh, these women's crime was that they were dressed in a way that would attract attention. On the other hand, men were described as wearing, quote, broadcloth coats, very many of them boots, fashionable Cossack pantaloons and white hats, watches and canes. Now, if you think back to our episode on suits, you might be thinking, gee, that sounds like they were dressed exactly like white men. That's correct. While women, at least in that quote we just read, were dressing to attract attention by being a little flirtatious and playful in their clothing, these men's, these men's, these men were wearing white men's clothes. In both cases, these were black people asserting their right to dress and walk as they wished, rejecting the strictures that had been placed on their bodies, clothing, and movement while they were in bondage. And white people felt affronted that black people weren't more demure and deferential. Strolling wasn't the only pastime. Black New Yorkers were known for their fiddling and dancing prowess. We often think of fiddle folklore as emanating from the South in Appalachia, but stories circulated around New York State about black fiddlers who were forced to fiddle for the devil or, were her, or who were so skilled with their instrument that listeners fell into trances and danced for hours without rest. Speaking of dancing, black men and women crowded into dance cellars to party and dance together. Occasionally, more elite blacks held their own charity balls, which were ostentatious affairs where people dressed up, rented fancy coaches, had an extravagant meal, drank, and danced. Whites often dismissed these events as blacks trying to emulate white elites and play acting in ridiculous ways. Uh, but it's important, I think, to remember that any event where blacks unapologetically occupied space for their pleasure was a threat to white supremacy. So even when they were having fun, black New Yorkers were also resisting. Black New Yorkers also worked to create physical and civic space for themselves in the city. In 1800, a group of black Methodists, tired of the racism they felt was endemic in their churches, joined together to create the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, known even now as Mother Zion. A few years later, another all-black congregation was created called the Abyssinian Baptist Church. Black church membership was overwhelmingly female. Abyssinian, for instance, was 75% female, which is, you know, pretty big percentages there. Um, and while the leadership was all men, women congregants, is that the right word? Yeah. yeah sure. Okay. Uh, women congregants headed up all of the church's committees and outreach programs, giving women a powerful platform for social reform. 
social organizations proliferated, including groups like the New York African Society for Mutual Relief, which began as a way for community members to pool their money to support one another for health and death benefits. As membership grew and as wealthier folks joined in the organization, the group also started to serve as a fraternal organization and political lobbying group. I just want to say it continued actually to be a kind of a secret fraternal organization until 1945. It was finally disbanded. Similar associations funded schools, organized all black cemeteries, funded health care and death benefits, encouraged civic engagement, and of course, advocated for abolition. Black New Yorkers also entered journalism, often considering publishing an extension of their work in voluntary societies. Black newspapers not only informed Black New Yorkers, but also served to help organize action. For instance, when a Black New Yorker named George Jones was kidnapped and was to be sold into slavery, a newspaper called The Emancipator helped to spread the word to energize the community to save the man. Together with voluntary organizations, newspapers mobilized the community until, as one member later recalled, quote, every thinking man and woman was a volunteer on the famous Underground Railroad. Abolition was a unifying force during the antebellum era. Black abolitionists had their own style, while white abolitionists tended to appeal to the hearts and minds, hoping to use moral suasion to bring people to the side of right. Black abolitionists were steadfast in, essentially, calling out slavery for what it was. Black New Yorkers were not only militant in their abolitionism, they were radical, at least from the white perspective and their demands for post-emancipation society. They rejected calls for colonization, demanded full civil rights, including the right to vote, and demanded an end to white supremacy. Now, I'll be honest, this episode could easily be another hour long. I really struggled with where to cut this one off. The documentary, The Woman in the Iron Coffin, raised so many fascinating and important questions. I just wish that we had time and the energy to talk about all of them right now. But I hope we can return to some of them later. Things like funeral culture, the history of Black religious culture, the history of smallpox, the history of Black domestic service. Um, There's so much to talk about. But that's what's fun about history, isn't it? You know, just when you poke your nose into one thing, you realize that there are 90 bazillion other rabbit holes to go poking around in. But we'll cut ourselves off for now. Be on the lookout for more information about The Woman in the Iron Coffin from Secrets of the Dead on PBS coming out this October. We will definitely be keeping you updated with air dates and viewing information. If you love digging into the past, cue the laugh track. Um, Yes, you will really not want to miss this incredible documentary. It's a great story. and, And I really hope that we were able to add some extra context for this woman's life and, her, and the experience of the black community in New York. Yeah. Uh, if you want to talk to us more about this episode or any other episode, you can always email us at hello at digpodcast.org. And don't forget about our not so secret Facebook group. I don't know why we keep referring to it as our secret Facebook group because it's not secret at all. Um, you know, don't forget about that. If you can't find a link to it, um, just let us know on Twitter or by email and we will happily add you. It's a really great space for us just to chat about stuff and and honestly just share articles and memes and, and ask each other weird questions. So please come join us in that group. And I think that's it. 
All right. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to watch The Woman in the Iron Coffin coming this October from Secrets of the Dead and PBS. This podcast was produced by the historians of DIG, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. As did the percentage of that population that was enslaved. What are you doing? I'm trying to take pictures. <laughs> In the loudest possible way. So this little, uh, you know, glimpse, um, wait, no, blah, 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 which turned water pun. John Jay, New York City. Blah, blah, blah. Oh. I'm gonna pause here for a second. That's what backhoes do, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> while I was, I remember while I was writing that, like thinking in my head. Double check that. Google backhoe. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm Elizabeth, and I'm Sarah, and, and we. Oh, I don't know why I did it that way. Yeah, I'm sorry. You go ahead. You okay. just start. I'll say I'm Sarah. Uh, I mentioned that things started to change when Peter Stuyvesant. <laughs> You're such a Jackson. How do you not know all these important New York names? <laughs> Stuyvesant? Stuyvesant. <laughs> get get up on your Dutch American, Dutch New Yorker history. <laughs> black residents of New Netherland adopted French culture. No, nope. excuse me. Black. <laughs> that would be funny though if they did. <laughs> you. <laughs> We're adopting French culture. Uh. I was going to interject something about Nova Scotia, but I'm not going to. I don't, I, I, it was like a mental note to myself to look that up, and I never did. <laughs> Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.